There are times in my life when I want that genie in a bottle where I can just ask for what I want and he's gonna bring about health, wealth, and happiness. And God says, I want someone who is willing to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and to follow me to consider the cost. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 1. And while you're looking for that, we have started a new series called Thriving in Babylon. This whole series can be summarized in the words of Daniel chapter 12 when he says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever." And ever. So Daniel really, in a nutshell, is all about how to be a faithful witness in a secular Babylonian world. And what we learned last week is that Babylon, that term Babylon, is a stand-in, not just for that particular nation at that particular time, that particular place thousands of years ago who exiled the people of Judah. It's a stand-in for any nation, any tribe, and indeed any heart that is bent against God, that stands in opposition toward God, that doesn't recognize that God is the sovereign king of the universe over all things. And so that means as we look at this text today, we can find its relevance for our own lives as well. In fact, even the way that Daniel was written uh, follows this theme. Get this, chapter one is written in Hebrew. And that first chapter is all about the exile of the people of Judah into Babylon, but it occurs in Judah. And then chapters through through seven, two through seven, are written in Aramaic. That's the language of the Babylonians, and it happens in Babylon. And then chapters eight through 12, those are the prophecies. That's the apocalyptic literature we're gonna get into eventually. And once again, it's the prophecies of Israel. So get this, this is what the author is trying to do even as we read this story, is he is saying, you might know what it looks like to remain faithful to God in the Hebrew chapters, but can you do it in Aramaic? You might know what it looks like to be a faithful witness to God on your own turf, in your own house, or in church world, but can you do it in Babylon? Can you be a faithful witness with nuance and winsomeness and wisdom in a place that is not your own, as you are an exile in a foreign land? And something I tried to lay out before you last week is that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to identify ourselves as exiles in a foreign land. That we are more than anything else citizens of the kingdom of God and not of any other kingdom. We live here, we love the people in this community, but we are ultimately citizens of the king and exiles in a foreign land. So that is ultimately the difference. So the main question, that I want you to be thinking about as we walk through this series is this. How can the people of God live by faith in a secular Babylonian world? What does it look like to do that? 
We need such wisdom today. And I want to propose to you that there are two religious ideas that have been alive and well throughout the centuries that every single person in this room has been exposed to, and both of these ideas dangerously miss the mark. So the way I've put it in your note sheet, the two religious pitfalls, both then and now, here it is. When it comes to living in Babylon, many Christians choose either assimilation or separation. Assimilation or separation. If you love to read, I would really encourage you to read one of two books. The first one is Christ and Culture by Richard Niebuhr. Uh, that's kind of an old book, so if you don't like old, confusing English, you can read Christ and Culture Revisited by D.A. Carson. Uh, in those books, one thing that Richard Niebuhr identifies is that these two twin pitfalls. The first is what he calls the Christ for culture response. That's the assimilation. And the second one is the Christ against culture response, and that's separation. So let's, let's look a little bit at these for a second. Assimilation means that you gradually look like everyone else around you. Their values become your values, and your lifestyle imitates the lifestyle of the culture around you. And by the way, this is the natural inclination of every human heart. It's kind of like a salmon who decides, you know what, I don't want to travel upstream. What happens when you sit still? You glide back. And so the natural inclination of every human heart, the do-nothing response, always invariably leads to assimilation. So of the two, assimilation is the most popular model that we find. And we'll see that also in our text. But because we're Christians, we want to resist, right? We want to live obedient lives. We want to be obedient to the call of God. But if we're not careful, here's what's going to happen. We're going to swerve from one ditch called assimilation into another ditch called separation. How do we do that? It's not like we join Amish communities today. Not all of us, anyway. It's not like uh, we become monks or conceal ourselves off from the rest of the world and decide not to associate with them by any means whatsoever. So how do we do this today? Well, here's what I want to lay out before you. We might not physically separate ourselves, but we create what I'm just going to call cultural separation. And this is an idea that is alive and well in the Christian church today. I think it's been on a rise over the course of the last about 30 years. So it's not new, but it is something that is growing in relevance and applicability for our lives today. I think it happened right around the time in which Christians realized that they were no longer the superpower in US and Canada, and we became far more interested in winning culture wars. We became far more interested in trying to hang on to some of the liberties and freedoms that we had when there was a waning influence in the culture around us today. So over the last 30 years, what have we seen? Christianity has been on a sharp, sharp decline. I'm not telling you anything new. And that has been growing and growing over the course of the last few decades. So interestingly, this was the exact controversy that was happening during the time of Daniel. Assimilation and separation. So let me show you this. Um, last week we talked about the exile which occurred in 605 BC. That is when King Nebuchadnezzar, he came into Judah, 
he ransacked the temple, he killed many of the soldiers, many of the men, and then he took 10,000 Jewish boys back to Babylon, right? That was 605 BC. Then there's a 10-year gap, and 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he takes all the Israelites with him. He exiles all of them. But during that 10-year period, there were two very powerful religious ideas that emerged. The first one, as we've talked about already, was the assimilation motif. It's the, the people of Judah saying, listen, we gotta go along to get along. We have to assimilate. Like, I, I know we've, we've been exiled, I know we've lost loved ones, but look at Babylon, the power, the prestige, the strength. If we just get along with them, then they will ultimately accept us. And we see that in this story as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Daniel chapter one, I'm gonna start at verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So typically when we read the story, all the attention goes to the faithfulness of Daniel and his, three free, and his three friends. However, what's written between the lines here is what we just read, that subtle verse in verse 13. Look at it again one more time. Compare our appearance with that of the what? The young men. Who are the young men that Daniel is referring to? the other 10,000 young Jewish boys who have been exiled with him. So what's the plain main thing that we see? We see four teenagers who remain faithful and obedient to the call of God, but we also see 10,000 minus four, 9,996 who don't. Who don't. They say, you know what, we gotta go along to get along. That is the assimilation Motif. What's remarkable about this story is not just the faithful witness of four teenage boys, but how quickly 9,996 don't. 
So that's where we see assimilation on shining display. But at the same time, uh, we see during this time a bunch of false prophets rose up and they started speaking into the ears of the people of Judah and the people of Israel saying, here's how we need to treat the Babylonians. They came in, they wiped us out, they murdered our loved ones, they ransacked the temple, and so what we need to do is to disassociate with them. Even if they force us to go into Babylon, don't associate with them whatsoever. Don't listen to them, don't talk to them, and if you pray, pray for their demise. Pray that God would destroy them. Pray that God would ultimately annihilate our foes called the Babylonians. And during this time, a true prophet by the name of Jeremiah emerges. And he says something remarkable. He says, you know what? The goal of, the, of, of us as the people of God is not for us to assimilate, but nor is it for us to separate. We need to be committed to a radically different and enormously difficult third way, we need to influence it. We need to influence it. That's where we pick up in Jeremiah chapter 29. You know that passage that we read all the time and we associate it for ourselves? I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you a hope, give you a future. We have it on our t-shirts, the back of our cars, on our mugs, but we don't know what the context is. This is the context right here. Here's what he says. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. Build houses in Babylon. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. An interesting reference to Daniel who says, I need to eat vegetables only. There's that. Have sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the well-being of the city to which I have deported you. God is sovereign. I have deported you there. I have placed you in this place. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. What did we just read? Are you kidding me? God says that we should pray for the inhabitants of the city of Babylon, the very people who wiped out our people. Are you kidding me? You expect me, God, to do this? But here's the point. As Christians, we are called to live as exiles in a foreign land. That much is true. We are not called to assimilate because as Jesus tells us, if we assimilate, we will lose our salt and we will be ineffective in our ability to transform a nation, to influence the people around us. But at exactly the same time, nor can we choose the cultural separation or the physical separation because God longs for us to influence a world that he loves. The very people who are far from God. He says, I want you to stay exactly where you are so that you can be a messenger of hope in a hopeless world. And that leads to a very important question. What does that look like? How do we do that? If we now understand that God does not want us to assimilate or to separate, but to influence a world, for them to see the gospel on shining display in our hearts, how do we do that? What does it look like to do that? Well, well, the life of Daniel is our case study. And we get to see 
the manner in which Daniel responds and behaves as a prescription for how we can do it in our lives today. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why we are so eager for you to be in groups. Because truth be told, some of us here have a bent toward assimilation. Right, that's kind of our natural response. We should go along to get along, don't make a big deal. And others of us, our bent is separation. And we say, you know, we gotta take a stand, we gotta make a fight, we gotta join forces. But the opportunity that you have when you gather together in groups is to soften each other's edges. And to say, what does it actually look like to be a faithful witness in a foreign land? How do we do that well? Because here are the implications of these two twin religious pitfalls, both then and now. I put it this way. If we assimilate, we will lose our faith. But if we separate, we will lose our calling. And neither are an option for a Christian. Neither of these are options for the Christian. Our goal is not to defeat the culture. Our goal is not to get cozy with the culture but to influence it. And so let's look again at verse three and see the conduct of Daniel and his friends. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, or chief eunuch is what is uh, written in Hebrew, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. So verse 3 says that Daniel was put under the chief eunuch which in all likelihood meant that he was made a eunuch himself. So his ability to be a husband and a father was quite literally crushed. He has lost that future. And as Plato said, the people enrolled in these training programs were typically between the ages of 14 to 18. So here's a question by a show of hands. How many of you here are 14, 15, 16, 17, or 18? Loud and proud. So here's a really sad thought for you. If, if you were alive during the time of the exile, this is you and your buddies, all right? So here are the things that we would be experiencing if we were living during that time in that place. And then what, what are they teaching these young boys? Look at verse four, it says this. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, if you have a study Bible or even uh, Bibles with little asterisks at the bottom, it might say a reference or Chaldeans. That's the, that's the Hebrew word that's used there, the Chaldeans. That's important because the Chaldeans were known for immersing themselves in two things, astrology and the occult. That's what, what, that's what they were most known for. So when these teenage boys spend three years at, let's just call it Babylon University, the things that they are learning are exactly that. Omens, magic incantations, myth, astrology, Babylonian occult practices. Not only that, but then King Nebuchadnezzar gives them a name change. Look at this, verse six. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah 
Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. What is the point of these names? Were they just easier to pronounce? No, no. Here's what we are seeing in this story. These four boys have names which point them to the Lord of the universe, to Yahweh. And Nebuchadnezzar just gave them new names to identify with these foreign deities. So I have it up on the screen. Here's what these mean. Hananiah means God is gracious. Shadrach means under the command of a coup, the gracious moon god. Mishael means there is no one like God. Meshach means there is no one like a coup. Azariah means God has helped me. Abednego means the servant of Nebo, who is the Babylonian god of help and wisdom. Do you see the switch? And then Daniel means God is my judge. And Belteshazzar means Bel protects the prince. And Bel was the most worshipped god of Babylon. And every single time in scripture you hear the word Baal, that's this. That's what it's in reference to. So of all the gods that you are to be identified with, Baal's the one you want the least. And here's Daniel. He's been given a new name. So every one of these boys, they have names which point them back to Yahweh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, pointing to the attributes and the faithfulness of this God. And instead, they now receive names which point to a foreign deity. And it's as if they are saying, you know what? If you want to be religious on your own time, you can do that. If you still want to be a Christian, you can do that. But we want to change your identity. We want you to associate with everything that we're doing here. We want you plugged into our system. Have you been there? The same things happen today, albeit in different ways. So pause for a moment. Think about what happened to these teenage boys, real people, young boys who watched as their homeland was invaded, as their families were killed, as the temple was ransacked, as their future as husbands and fathers was crushed and destroyed, as their names were changed to a foreign deity, all these things. And then when they get there, it gets worse. They're forced to speak the Babylonian language, they're enrolled in Babylon University to study omens and the occult. And after those three years, lucky you, you finished your program. You can now serve in the king's palace until the day that you die. That was the story for these teenage boys. But here's what I want you to see. To all these things, there's not a single word of protest. No taking a stand. No fighting, no, no arguing, at least not until verse 8. Take a look at this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So let me just ask you a question for a second and be honest. Which of these two scenarios which would you be more likely to resist? Number one, 
you get a government-imposed name change from God is our judge to Satan's prince, essentially, or whatever your name is, fill in the blank, from Justin to Satan's prince, and you are ripped away from your family, you're castrated, you're put into a government-imposed program at, let's just say, UBC, where you must study incantations and the occult and anything that the government wants to share with you. And at graduation of that three-year program, then you have to serve the government for the rest of your days. Or number two, they come along and they tell you, here's what you have to do. You must eat the choicest of meats. I'm talking about T-bone steak, filet mignon, A5 Wagyu beef, right? Shrimp scampi butter-infused salmon goodness. Oh, and by the way, you must always drink it down with a glass of wine or a good bourbon for the rest of your days. Which one are you going to resist? I think it's pretty evident for me, at least. I'm thinking to myself, Daniel, this is the first good thing that's happened to you since exile, and you're resisting this? Why? Why? What's happening here that Daniel ultimately takes a stand with that? What's all this about? So what's significant about this little event and what it exposes in our own heart is something that I really, I've been praying all this week that the Lord would illuminate our hearts and our minds and that we would have the receptivity to hear this incredibly difficult teaching that Daniel just shared with us. So I put it this way, this is what I believe Daniel is exposing in our own hearts as a result of our sin nature, the traitor within. Every single one of us is prone to this. This is the sin nature problem. We are often more concerned with our own freedoms than our holiness. We are often more concerned with our own freedoms than our holiness. We have Jesus who tells us that we are called to be in the world, but not of it. And we are far more likely to be of the world, but not in it. And that is the radical challenge that Daniel lays before us. The royal food and wine would have included a lot of things that are for forbidden by the Torah uh, for Israelites to eat. Uh, for instance, the king's food probably put them at odds with uh, dietary requirements. If you want to read more on that, you can read Leviticus chapter 11. Which, by the way, I, this is just total sidebar, but it's of interest to me. We know that during the time of Judah, no one's reading scripture, no one's reading the law until the time of King Josiah. So if Daniel understands the law, that means that he's part of a select few people who are actually reading it before the exile. Either his parents were devout, godly people, or he studied under King Josiah, or both. But there's something that happened in Daniel's history that prepares him for this day. And he says, I want to be set apart. And I just think that is really, really interesting. But notice the reasons are actually not stated. We don't know the exact reasons why uh, Daniel chose not to eat this meat. And here's why I think it is intentionally omitted. This is, uh, this is the word of Justin, not the word of Jesus. So I'm just moving away from the imaginary pulpit here. This is just my word, uh, an assumption that I think is happening in the story, an educated guess. I think the reason 
Why it is intentionally vague is because it's not just about the meat. It's about any time and any place in which we are tempted to enjoy the delicacies of Babylon. Any time and any place in which we are tempted to indulge ourselves in things that are not from God. So here's really a, a way of thinking about this. What if we, like Daniel, were more passionate about our own personal piety and our holiness than trying to achieve personal freedoms or win culture wars? What if we were more concerned with what we watched on Netflix, what we listened to, where and how we spent our money, what we did behind closed doors when no one else is watching, what we ate and how much we ate, what we drink and how much we drink, how we conduct our business, the ethics behind how we treat our employees, what we do with our very lives. What if we were more concerned with our obedience than in retaining our personal rights and freedoms? And we see here in the story of Daniel, what he gets bent out of shape about is not anything that's tied to his freedoms, but is ultimately anything that is tied to his obedience and piety toward God. That is the first word of protest. That is the first word of concern. What am I consuming? What am I taking in that may adversely affect my ability to be a faithful witness in a foreign land. That is the heart of Daniel. So here's Daniel, a public name change uh, to Satan's prince. He says, I'll endure that. Forced to go to Babylon University for three years and study magic omens and the occult and incantations, he says, I'm gonna get straight A's. I'm gonna learn everything about Babylonian culture so that I have a better means to understand it and to influence it. Ripped away from his family, his family is killed, castrated. He says, I will lament these things without ascribing hatred to the very people who have caused these terrible atrocities to happen so that I can influence them. That's the heart of Daniel. But where he draws the line is a moment when he is asked to consume or to take in that which keeps him from being fully devoted to God. I might live here, says Daniel, but I belong to someone else. I belong to someone else. And one day, Jesus will share something that brings this principle into even greater clarity when he is talking to religious leaders who are so frustrated with people who are choosing to assimilate, and they go on the other side to separate, and they pontificate against people, and they identify who's holy and who's not. They're known for what they're against. They won't associate with other sinful people. Their hearts are stubborn, and Jesus says these words to those who are choosing to separate. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside might become clean as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Jesus, not playing games. Which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and every kind 
of impurity. So here's what we see. If we avoid the trap of assimilation, only to fall into separation, what good is that? What good is it? Daniel says, I will be in the world today, but I will not be of it. So just imagine for a moment the scene. 10,000 Jewish teenagers sitting in the king's hall, and it's like a Brazilian steakhouse with wine on tap, endless wine, and everyone is about to sit down to eat, and then you hear a, Err! he moves the tray. Daniel stands up. He says, guys, we can't eat this. Everyone else is like, well, what? what do you mean we can't eat this? He's like, we can't eat this. Anyone with me? Anybody? Out of 10,000? Shadrach, who's just a couple tables down, he stands up. He moves the tray. He says, I'm with you. Two out of 10,000. Is there anybody else? Someone tugs on Daniel's shirt, and he says, what are you doing? Sit down. They'll kill you. Daniel says, anybody else? Meshach stands up. He says, I'm with you. Three out of 10,000. Abednego stands up, four out of 10,000, and no one else stands. Just four boys who are seeking to be obedient to the call of God. But then, where the story goes next, I think is equally incredible. We see how Daniel responds to the chief eunuch. He doesn't throw a gasket. Right? He, he doesn't uh, get in their face and defend his rights. He's not c carrying placards and posters. No more meat. No more meat. He doesn't do any of those things. There's a courtesy here, a gentleness, fruit of the Spirit. There's love and joy and peace and patience. There's goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. As he talks to the chief eunuch, he asks, he says, may I please? Fascinating. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, let's read uh, verse 8 into verse 9. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked, circle, highlight, underline, the chief official, for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord my king too, who has assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see you looking worse than all the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you, write down Jeremiah 39, 6 to 7, and also Jeremiah 29, verse 22. Now here's why. This is going to give you a flavor of who King Nebuchadnezzar is and how he treats people who disobey him. So one of those stories is about two kings who fought against King Nebuchadnezzar and he put them on a spit while they were still alive and roasted them over a fire. But to one of these kings in this story, he takes it a step further. And this is a king who tried to cause an uprising against the nation of Babylon. And he does something a little bit extra special. He takes the king, puts him down on his knees, brings out his entire family. And with his own sword, he slits all their throats and chops them into pieces. And then he gouges out the eyes of the king. 
But rather than kill him, he brings him back to Babylon to live out all of his days until he dies of old age so that the last thing that he ever saw for decades before his death is the slaughter of his own family. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see it. This chief eunuch, he's caught up in Babylon too. He's just as afraid of King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, listen, I'd be happy to do that. I actually like you, Daniel. You're so courteous and kind, and you always say, may I please and thank you. You're always so gracious to me. But if I do this, it's my head. I can't do this, Daniel, as much as I would love to do it for you of all people. I just can't do it. Then what does Daniel do? This is an interesting note. Does Daniel say, you know what? I don't care because all you Babylonians, you came in and you destroyed my family. You ransacked the temple. You slaughtered my parents. You killed my people. You brought us all back as slaves. What do I care if you get slaughtered in the midst of it? I'm not eating this. No, he doesn't do that. Once again, he asks with incredible grace. Verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance to what you see. In other words, Daniel says, watch my life and see. I would love to lay it down before you that the calling of your life for those of you who are followers of Jesus is to tell your unchurched and unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors, watch my life and see what God does. See what God does. And so that's what we see. This is where Daniel convicts me. Oftentimes, if, if I can just be honest with you, Many times in my life, I care far more about what people think of me than what they think of my God. There are times in my own life in which I want the title of being a Christian, but God wants my testimony. There are times in which I want the blessings of being a Christian, but God wants my obedience. There are times in my life when I want that genie in a bottle where I can just ask for what I want and he's gonna bring about health, wealth, and happiness. And God says, I want someone who is willing to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and to follow me to consider the cost of discipleship. Justin, will you consider the cost of discipleship? Even when all your religious friends all around you are going to be far more temp tempted to assimilate like the 9,996 teenage boys that were around Daniel and his friends, or to segregate and to say, you know what, they're going to hell in a handbasket anyway, why would we spend a, even a moment lifting a pinky finger to helping the very people who have caused so much heartache and pain to our people? Daniel does neither of them. He chooses to be a faithful witness. So what happens ultimately in the story? Look at verse 14. This is where it goes. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. 
By the way, the point of the story is not a Jesus-blessed super keto diet. Just had to throw that out in front of you. Apparently, these are the only things that they cannot eat that were not richly defiled. That's all we're getting. But if you want to take it for that, then God bless you. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to none other than King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They've returned back to their Hebrew names. There's a courtesy now on both sides. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So what do we see? What's, what's the principle that's being taught in this story? Well, one of the things that we see is when we commit to doing things God's way, he oftentimes glorifies himself by honoring you. However, this is not prescriptive because what we're going to see in Daniel is sometimes you're going to do the right thing and you're going to suffer for it. This is not health, wealth, happiness, gospel. We don't sell that here. But there are times in which we see that God wants to display his glory to all of the world and he's going to use you for that purpose. So the way I like to share it with you is that God is always, always, always interested in his glory and your good. And whether that is to bless your life or to allow you to endure affliction in your life, ultimately that is the goal. That is the goal. And so here's the mission, the last point in your note sheet. Our mission while living in Babylon is not to assimilate, nor to separate, but to influence a world that God loves. To influence a world that God loves. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of this dark age in the spiritual realm. What is the point of that? For us to have the nuance and the wherewithal to understand that even with the people with whom we disagree, maybe vehemently, maybe even someone we hate, maybe it's a government official, maybe it's someone that you've put your hope in, maybe it's someone who you've vilified, whoever it is, for you to realize that that person might be captive to your enemy, Satan, but they are not your enemy. Even the people we disagree with, the most in our hearts that we say they are doing something evil and inhumane and wrong, they are not your enemy. They are captive to the enemy. And we see this in Daniel, so much so that Daniel gets a place to enter into the king's palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, the very man who ordered the decree to make his life a living hell. And it would be so easy for Daniel to throw him off. And to say, I will not seek the welfare of this man. But he chooses courtesy. And what we discover next week, just to give the spoiler alert, he leads King Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. Daniel, of all people, leads Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. But it all starts here. Daniel and his friends, they do not know that three chapters from now, there will be a fiery furnace. 
And two chapters after that, there will be a den of lions. They don't know that. All that they have before them is a singular moment of will I remain obedient to the call of God? What will I do? So how do we have the courage and the wisdom to live a life like this? Here's what I wanna lay before you before we close. The best example of this that we see is in the life of Jesus. See, Jesus' life and his ministry was a paradox because in one sense, there was never anyone nor will there ever be a person who is so righteous and so pure that he would go far as far to say that all heaven would pass away before even a jot or a tittle of God's law would be demolished or compromised. But at exactly the same time, there is no person who ever drew the outcasts as much as Jesus. Why was it that the tax collectors and the pimps and the prostitutes and the public officials all came to Jesus in droves? Because he's committed to this third way, to influence a world that he loves. So much so that he would ultimately go to a cross and he would say to his heavenly father while he hung there on that tree, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the they in that story is you and me. We don't know what we're doing. At any moment, he could call a legion of angels to come by his side and to deliver him from his suffering, but he stayed because he saw your face and he longed for you to enter into his presence. And the only way that we are going to have a life like Daniel's is if we can see that ultimately our neighbors, even the ones that we don't like, are not our enemy. They are captive to our enemy the same way that we were before we met Jesus. That it is only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we have a leg to stand on. Otherwise, our life is just like Nebuchadnezzar's, just like that person with whom you might be tempted to vilify Whoever those people are, we realize yet again that it's either full on the work of Justin or full on the work of Jesus and there's nothing in between and the gospel says, let go of the work of Justin and cling to the work of Jesus. And so we have a choice to make. What decision will we make in our own lives? The decision that you make is a package deal You either accept the grace of God for yourself and your neighbor, or you don't. But we don't get to make the decision where I'm going to accept the grace of God, but give judgment to my neighbor. It comes as a package deal. So look to the cross, friends. Look to the work of Jesus. You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.